Well, hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Switching Majors podcast. I'm your host, Mary Ellen Pesanello, and this is episode eight. Holy hell, I have an interview. What's up, guys? It's Mary Ellen. Welcome to the Switching Majors podcast, episode eight. Holy hell, you have an interview. You did it. All your hard work is paid off. You networked your ass off. You wrote those awkward emails. You applied to those jobs. You tracked those jobs. And now someone is reaching out to you from an HR department to say, hey, you're not a total waste of my time, maybe. I want to talk to you. I want to know more. So even though this is just the beginning of the work, I want you guys to take a moment to just applaud yourselves. Take a breath. Have a beer. Appreciate the fact that you are being recognized as potential talent for a company. This is a huge accomplishment. Okay, now it's over. Now we got to get to work. We have an interview to prepare for. The one thing that I need you guys to remember is that just because we have an interview doesn't mean that we have a job offer. I know it's very exciting. I am not trying to belittle an accomplishment because it is an accomplishment. However, I wouldn't be doing any of you justice if I told you that you should stop applying for other jobs. So although you are scheduling this interview for whatever job this is, you are continuing to apply for other jobs on the side. Arguably, this is harder. You're managing your job applications while also deep diving into a company that might want to employ you. However, you guys need to know, nothing is set in stone until you sign an offer letter from the company that intends to hire you. Typically, if you are being considered for a role at a company, The first correspondence will be with HR and they will reach out to you to set up a preliminary interview or a first round interview, if you will. Now, let's remember that I have not worked at small companies or startups. So this is a very typical corporate practice where HR either wants to have a phone call with you, potentially have a Zoom with you, or invite you to complete a hire view. So let's talk about Hire View first because it's a little bit more straightforward. Hire View is a company that conducts video interviews in an attempt to ease the responsibilities of an HR department. So what it will be is a series of questions that are predetermined by HR, and then they invite you to a link where you need to be ready to record your responses on video. I believe that with Hire View, you get like, two or three chances to record your response, but the video times out after one or two minutes. I, In full disclosure, I have never done a higher view myself. I have heard about them from my interns and I have viewed them when I was looking for an intern. I do find that higher views are typically more to filter the mass amount of applications that a big company gets for internships. However, I could see this potentially being a filter for larger company programs. So like, for example, NBC has their page program. I know that JP Morgan has a coding program. And for entry-level programs like that, which I'm a huge advocate of and I wish more companies did them, a higher view might 
reduce or condense or you know, get the applicant pool down to a manageable number. So I just want to mention these as prep for you guys. I think that it's important to maybe at an entry level expect that potentially you will have to record an interview for someone to view at a later time rather than have an on-the-spot conversation that could be a little bit more fluid. Typically, in my experience, When you have a first round interview, HR will email you to set up a time to speak. Now, back in my day, especially when I was going from AMC to CBS, HR would call you. Now, this doesn't happen as much anymore. People send emails. But guys, if you are in the middle of searching for a job Answer your goddamn phone and make sure that your voice mailbox has an appropriate recording on it because you just never know. I think that when you answer your phone, it should be, this is Mary Ellen, because you are using your cell phone as a business line for business purposes. And if any of your friends are calling you, then their number is in your phone already. And if anyone from Hinge is trying to pull a fast one and call you, well, then you just really impressed the guy. So congrats. And then finally, if the phone call goes to voicemail, your name should be identified in the voicemail. And The way that my voice mailbox reads is, hello, you've reached the voice mailbox of Mary Ellen Pesanello. I'm unable to get to the phone right now, but please leave a message and I'll get back to you shortly. That's professional as fuck. And the other thing too is that even if you don't want to be that professional, please identify yourself because no one is going to leave a message for you about a job if they question the number that they dialed. So when you have these generic voicemails of you've reached 718, no one knows who they're getting a hold of. Help me help you and just set your voicemails, please, for the love of God. It's got to be like a generational crusade I'm on for this, like please. All right, all right, rant over, back to it. This HR person is going to reach out to you via email to set up time for a preliminary interview, a first round interview, a screener interview, all the same thing. This is going to be the first step to actually get the job that you applied to, but it's a bigger deal than just that. What you are doing is you are forming an initial relationship with this HR person who will continue to work at the company whether or not you get the job that you've applied for. Often we say you don't interview for the first job, you interview for the second job. And this is exactly what we mean. You're going to get in front of this person, you're going to be on your A game, you're going to talk amazingly through all of your experience and tangible results and impress them with your industry knowledge because you have done your homework. That is how you get this HR person on your side. So then when they go to the hiring manager, they're going to speak highly of you. And even if that hiring manager says, hey, Mary Ellen's not a good fit for this role at this point in time, then that HR person says, okay, no problem. I'll consider her for other roles down the road. So this first impression conversation arguably is the most crucial part of the interview Because even if you don't get this job, it sets you up for the next job. So what is this phone call exactly? 
This call with HR or maybe a video interview, depending on the person that you're dealing with, is honestly just a phone call to make sure that you are not a crazy person and that you are well-spoken. So those are the two most important things when you take this initial conversation. I have had first round phone calls with HR people who have been working with their hiring managers for years and years, and they know exactly what that hiring manager is looking for. And I've also had conversations with HR people who don't really know the person that they're hiring for. So during this conversation, the HR person has the job description. They do not have the details. They do not work in that department day to day. So as you go through this conversation, it's going to be general. It's going to be top line. You can talk about your experience, why you would be a good fit, but anything super granular shouldn't come up for right now, in my opinion, save that for the hiring manager. This HR person is also going to be your point of contact for the entire interviewing process. That means that this HR person most likely is going to schedule your interviews for you. They're going to communicate with you when it comes to rescheduling second rounds, third rounds, or even maybe projects that you have to complete to land the job. They are going to be the ones that call you if and when you get an offer. They are going to be the person that you negotiate with, and they are going to be the person that passes along the hiring paperwork that you need to sign in order to complete this process. So this is a big, crucial person for the rest of this interview. Let's buddy up with them. Let's treat them with respect, and let's really understand their value in this process. So let's talk about scheduling this phone call. If you currently have a job, you are going to have to take this phone call during working hours. It's just a thing. Everybody works within a nine to five window and you're going to have to make the time. So you're going to want to block off your calendar 15 minutes before the phone call and 15 minutes after the phone call. The reason that we do this is because we want those 15 minutes to decompress. It's a very stressful situation and be ready for that phone call to come through. We don't want to be running from another meeting that might be going over. We want to have a chance to settle. Then you're going to take the phone call and then you have the 15 minutes on the back end so that you can collect your thoughts, make additional notes, or just in case your phone call with HR runs over, then you, you're you all set. If you don't have a job, <laughs> girl, you free. <laughs> like, just take the phone call. So HR people are very understanding of schedules. You know, it is not a big deal to tell them, oh, I can't do this time, as long as you come back to them and say, hey, while I am not free at the time you suggested, here are several other times this week that I am available. You're going to want to make sure that you take this phone call in a quiet space, which I think is a given. And this is really easy to do sometimes with COVID when we're all working from home. But if you are in the office, what I used to do is I used to book a conference room on another floor away from my boss's desk, or I used to uh, have like coworkers that I trusted who had offices, and I would say to them, hey, are you using your office? I need it from 
this time to this time. And sometimes it would work out, sometimes it wouldn't. So you really do want to find yourself a space to take this phone call and make sure that there's not a lot of background noise. When I am taking this phone call, I turn my iPhone on sleep mode after the call starts so that if anybody texts me, it doesn't distract from what I'm doing. If I am working and I have a job, I also put my computer on mute so that emails and notifications and slacks don't distract me. This phone call has not been a Zoom for me in the past, but Since COVID, that might have changed or it might change for a lot of different HR people in the first round. So, and especially if you're doing those higher views. So let's take into consideration the background and your shoulder up attire. We will be covering this in further detail in like, give me like another 20 minutes. And then we'll talk all about conducting video interviews. So let's take a moment to talk about how you prepare for this first initial phone call with this HR person. What I like to advise people that I'm mentoring is that we're going to go back to our job tracker. I've explained that my job tracker is an ongoing Google document that is well over 200 pages at this point, but I'm going to go back there and I'm going to reread the job description that I'll be talking to this HR representative about. I'm going to pay attention to the top line responsibilities, the responsibilities that are listed first, and then focus less attention on the responsibilities listed last. I want to make sure that I am meeting the needs holistically, but that I am dividing my attention responsibly, being able to talk about that first bullet in depth and maybe touch on the last one that's listed in the job description. What I like to do is that because my tracker is in a Google document, I go back to that job description and I make notes in a different color. For example, I was up for a job at Google ages and ages ago, and the bullet said that I needed experience in project management with the ability to lead complex strategic and operational initiatives. So next to that bullet in my tracker, I made some notes in purple. And from my notes, I was able to explain in my conversation that as my team was launching Food Network Kitchen, I had managed a document that tracked over a thousand assets for a creative team and included details on their delivery, such as specs and size and due date. And I would meet with my creative team several times a week to go over any questions, any hurdles, any hiccups, and I continuously checked in with them and made sure that this project was on track for delivery. And then I talked about the successful launch of Food Network Kitchen, an app that had already been announced publicly. I was able to adequately answer that question because I had pre-thought of my answer before I was even asked about it. This is also the time where I'm going to reinforce that you all listen to earnings calls. So if this first round interview is with Hulu, you bet your ass that you're listening to the latest Disney earnings call so that you can not only talk about the business in an educated fashion, but that you can relay to this HR person that you do your homework. I also encourage you to visit the company's press site and to read generally about any company announcements. 
At the time of this podcast recording, Discovery Plus was announced a week and a half ago and is already launched. So if I'm interviewing someone for any of our Discovery brands and they don't bring up Discovery Plus, at least in an aside, I know that they're not informed. We are about to talk about the most important part of this first round interview conversation. But just before I do, remember, the HR person might not know all the nitty gritty details of the job that you're going for. So I want you to use this opportunity to ask more generalized questions of your HR person. You should go in there with questions. I'm sure you have a ton of questions. One of the good ones that I like to use with HR especially if they've been working there a long time, is if you could change one thing about the company, what would it be? And I've gotten some really great insight from that question. I interviewed at Viacom years ago, and that HR person said that their headquarters being located in Times Square was very annoying. I also interviewed at CBS aside from my job with them for another role, and they said that not enough employees take advantage of tuition reimbursement. So like these are really good things to be talking about and discussing with your HR person. Remember, this person is looking to make sure that you have industry knowledge, that you have the top line qualifications, that you have general preparedness for the interview, And that you can fit into a working environment, which so far I think everybody who's listened to this podcast would be able to do. But then there's a couple things that are going to come up that are super, super important. The first important thing, but not the most important thing, is relocation. This is the point at which you can express that you are willing to relocate for a job Or the HR person talking to you will tell you that you have to relocate for a job. Now, of course, we have mandated company work from home orders because of a global pandemic. So perhaps this conversation might look like, oh, well, typically the job is in LA, but for now everyone's working from home, so we don't really care where you are. We'll revisit it at a later time. But I do want you guys to know that this is the only time that it will be brought up. And then secondly, the most important thing that you will never talk about again is salary. And what do I mean by that? Well, salary only comes up at the beginning of the interview process and then again if you get the offer. So this is the point in time in which this HR person will turn to you and say, what are you looking to make from this job? Or they'll tell you what the job pays and you need to, in the moment, decide if it's worth it or not. So for example, I was going for a job at NBC Universal. I had the HR screener and the woman wanted me to take a $15,000 pay cut for the job that she was hiring for. And once I realized that I wasn't willing to take a $15,000 cut, the conversation stopped and I never talked to that woman again. That's how it goes. So this is your only opportunity to say what you expect to be making and it's the only shot that you'll get. So you better be well-versed on how much you could be making in this role. I will say, 
if you just graduated from a university, this is a very hard conversation to have. And typically what I have seen from my own experience and from the experience of others is that for entry level, this HR person will say the job pays X amount of money, meaning that you will not have an opportunity to say how much you want to be making. But that doesn't mean that you should be lowballing yourself. You should be utilizing Glassdoor.com to see what a competitive starting rate is at that particular company. And remember, this podcast is based on my experience in the entertainment and media industry where I have seen an average salary from forty dollars to $50,000 a year for entry level. There tends to be very little wiggle room for negotiation if you are starting your salary at an entry-level job, and that's because they know that you're literally not making any money right now. So any money that they offer you is going to be better than nothing. So if you are a recent grad, I could see this going one of two ways. You're either going to be able to ask for a salary or be told the salary. So if you are asked how much you want to be making, I advise... $50,000 is a really good place for you to be saying that you want to start at. That's the higher end of the spectrum that I've seen. And then when HR tells you the salary, it might be lower, it might be there, but they're going to say that it's non-negotiable. So the thing is, is that that's always like a kiss of death when you're talking to HR. So what else can you ask about? I want you to ask if the role is overtime eligible. Typically in the state of New York, if you are making under $60,000 a year for a reputable company, they have to pay you overtime for the overtime that you do. So that means that like you'll get your base salary and then any other hours that you put in, you'll get time and a half. So yes, if it's eligible, that's great. That means that it's going to be a little bit more than the 50K that you're working with. But then I want you to follow up and ask, is overtime capped? This is a big indicator of how much work you will be doing at this job. So for example, I have coached a lot of young people who have entered into the agency world and they have gone in and asked if the overtime is capped and the answer is no. That means that you are going to be working 12 hours a day, pretty much. Get ready. But if the overtime is capped, that means that you want to know what the cap is so that if the overtime cap is only 10 hours per person per week, can you hit those 10 hours? Is it doable? Is there enough work to do that? And then can you have your salary inflate a little bit by the time you take home your paycheck? I also don't want you guys getting too discouraged about this initial salary conversation. You will have the opportunity to negotiate this salary at the time of the offer. So I'm not saying that $50,000 isn't $50,000. I'm not saying that HR is lying to you that the salary is non-negotiable. But what I am saying is that you will have more opportunity once you have an offer letter to negotiate this. It might work. It might not. I've seen both. 
A final tactic that you can use here that I really advise is to give a range when you are having your initial conversations of salary. So for instance, if you know that you want 50,000, but that maybe they might pay 45, you're gonna wanna say, I'd like to make 50 to 55,000 at this job. I'd like to make 50 to 60,000 at this job. It is a risk when negotiating because the other party hears the lower end while you hear the higher end. But I do find that it is okay to give a range during the preliminary conversations of salary. When you finally are in the midst of negotiating with an offer, that's when you stick to your guns and stay on the high end. Now I need to take a moment to talk to those of you who are looking for a second job. You already have your entry-level role. You're looking for a change maybe between departments or companies. But I need you to know that as you look outside of your company for your second job, this is the only opportunity that you will have to significantly make a financial jump. When you transfer inside your company, HR already knows what you're getting paid. So typically, they're only going to give you between 10 and 15% of your annual salary as a raise or a promotion. But if you go from CBS to Disney, Disney doesn't really know what CBS is paying you. They know what a range might be, but they don't know the exacts. So I have seen people make a jump of $10,000 to $20,000 just by changing companies. And why does such a jump happen? Well, for a lot of reasons, but in short, your company that you are working for right now is probably lowballing you. And then with the tools that I'm going to teach you guys about negotiating, you're going to come into that new company on the higher end of the range. So that's what can account for such a big jump in between one job to the next. If you are currently in a position at your company where you are overtime eligible, I cannot stress enough that your next move should be achieving base salary. And what do I mean by this? I mean a job that in the state of New York pays $60,000 a year at a major company. Once you hit the $60,000 a year mark, you no longer are eligible for overtime. And I know that sometimes you guys look at it and you're like, well, with the overtime, I can make between sixty and $70,000 a year, depending on how many hours. Just don't do it. Just get to 60. Because once you get to 60, you can start actually asking for money. And if you're still inhibited by overtime, you're going to essentially stunt the growth of your career. So I advise everybody that I talk to, to get to $60,000 a year as quickly as you can possibly can, because then you're in the big leagues. You're talking about your salary and your trajectory at a company in a serious way. If you're still overtime eligible, the, the company is just like, has already deemed the work you're doing to, to be so many hours and so grunt work that like you don't even want to bother with it anymore. I also need to tell you all that in the state of New York and a lot of other states in the country, although I would check it if you're listening in a different state, it is illegal for HR to ask you how much you are currently making. So the way around this is that they ask you what you're looking to make. 
And this is the opportunity in which you get to set that range, determine the salary numbers that you'll be looking at. I also want to encourage all of you to start thinking about your salary in percentages. So let's just take an easy number. If you're making $50,000 a year at your current job and you want to start making $60,000 a year at your next job, that's a 20% salary increase. So I already mentioned, and I'll cover this in a later episode, but companies typically only give raises and promotions that I've seen in 10% and 15% increments. So by moving companies, you can at least try to hit that 20%. But I don't want you guys to get greedy. I don't want you guys to be misinformed when you go to talk about these numbers. Because for instance, if you're making that 50k and you go asking for 70, that's a 40% increase. And that's a very different number than 20. So like I said, HR isn't going to know what you are making currently at your role, but they're going to have an idea. So you really don't want to be outlandish here. And that's why boiling down the money that you're asking for into a percent increase is going to better give you an idea of if you are asking for fair market versus being ballsy as fuck and asking for something that's completely out of right field. Because like I said, I told you guys that story. If you're not at least a little bit conservative and informed about the role that you're going for, when you ask for that outlandish amount of money, they'll just tell you that they're not going to entertain your application anymore. So it is a sweet spot of knowing your value versus staying in the running. So if you make it past the HR screening phone call, you're going to get invited to do a phone call with the hiring manager. And just so there's no confusion, the hiring manager is the person who will be your boss. So I want you guys to remember that, keep that top of mind as we go through this whole process. Prepping for the call with the hiring manager, aka your maybe future boss, is very similar to what we did for HR. So we are going to re-listen to the earnings calls. We are going to reread the job description. We are going to revisit the press site. And you're going to notice that as you go through all of these individual meetings, there is a lot of repetition to this process. We are ideally doing the same prep for each round of the interviews. And that is how we reinforce the knowledge of the company at hand. Of course, this call is different. Now when you get asked questions by the hiring manager, you're going to want to be more detailed and specific with your answers and describing your work experience. So we talked about this on the resume, right? We talked about telling your story. The hiring manager is much more interested in the nuances of previous experiences than maybe the HR person was. So we're going to want to more than ever before plan our answers with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that every answer that you tell should be a collective story. We also don't want to be too casual when talking to this person. Remember, Relationships happen over time. So if I jump into a tell me about yourself with, okay, well, I have three brothers and like my mom and my dad and I live in Jersey, like no one cares. They want to know top line about you. They want to understand what you want to accomplish. And remember, I can't stress this enough. If you are interviewing for a job and you already have a job, you clearly do not like your current job. Everyone has been there. 
everyone understands this, but with every fiber of your being, you are going to talk about your current employer positively, respectfully, and with the utmost gratitude because nobody likes anyone that's negative. And just because you are in that room or on that phone call talking to that hiring manager does not mean that you have an offer. So until you no longer work at the company that you're working for, you only have good things to say about them in a public facing setting. If you make it past the first phone call with the hiring manager, you are going to get invited to do more interviews. Like the amount of interviews that you're doing are just, it's a lot, so just buckle up. But now we're at the point of the podcast where we're in a global pandemic. And I have to fucking give you guys two different examples of an in-person interview versus a Zoom interview. So bear with me as we get into both. But what I do wanna say is that on all interviews, you are asking permission of the interviewer to take notes. And I've talked about this in the networking episode. We are not doing this because we actually want permission. Like, yeah, go take your notes. But we want to call to the attention of the interviewer that we care so much about this material that we are going to write it down. And usually what I do in an interview is that I have like a legal pad with me. Of course, like they can't see that if you're on Zoom. But I use one page for notes and then I have another page that I've set up where I've divided the page and I wrote specific questions on the left hand of the page and left room on the right hand for answers. So that is a great tactic of planning out the questions that you have for the hiring manager because like stop being surprised about every single interview that you have someone saying do you have any questions like it's always coming so be prepared for it and then with every interview regardless of in person or on zoom I want you to confirm the email contact of every person that you meet with and the reason that we do this is because we send prompt thank you notes over in the switching majors world and With larger companies, with common names, you want to be sure that you're emailing the right person. So those are the two things that you're going to do in every single interview. I know that it's COVID, but let's just dive into what you do in an in-person interview. So if you are going to a company office to interview, which it might be years until we do that again, you want to arrive not early you want to arrive with enough time to get fucking lost. So for those of you who are familiar with New York City, and particularly Chelsea Market, the Food Network offices are in Chelsea Market. And that thing is a fucking labyrinth. And not only if you know your way around is it still confusing, but it is filled with tourists. So even if you get there with ample time, you still have to zigzag fucking Pac-Man your way through a crowded landscape of every tourist that decided to visit New York City that time of year. So that is why the rule of thumb is don't arrive early, arrive with enough time to get lost. 
And you want to understand that you're probably not going to have the email address of the hiring manager or the person that you're meeting with. So you might not be able to contact them. What happens when you're scheduling this is HR schedules the meetings and to try to keep a barrier for the hiring manager and for the candidate so that they're not emailing directly and that HR is still involved in the process. HR will not give you the interviewer's contact information and vice versa. So you might not even ever meet this HR person, but they're the only means of contact that you have. So you especially don't want to get lost when they might be out that day and you're only supposed to be meeting with the interviewer. If you are in person, I really advise that you dress more conservatively unless you're told otherwise. So for women, suits. I get it. Okay, men, yeah, you put on a suit and you look dapper as fuck. We get it. Women, suits are like weird, okay? Like, like that might be like too professional. I have never worn a suit on an interview. I have worn a dress with a jacket blazer type situation. So professional, especially modern professionalism, it doesn't have to be a strict suit, just so you know. And that obviously depends on the company. So make sure that you do your research. You should be looking up every single person that you are about to meet with on LinkedIn before you meet with them. Because remember, LinkedIn is going to alert that person that you viewed your profile. You can even send a request to that person. But the timeliness of you looking them up before you actually have a meeting with them is an acceptable time in which to do your stalking. So you do want to do that. I also advise you guys to travel light, and this includes jackets. So if you're interviewing in the wintertime and you have a big cumbersome coat, not going to fly. It looks bulky. It looks weird. Like, what do you do with it? How do you gracefully enter and exit a room with it? It's just awkward. Men have the luxury of carrying just a portfolio binder, like a little, like, you know, professional notebook with pockets in it. I have one myself, but women do need to carry bags. So women, let's use bags to our advantage. Guys too, if it's appropriate. But especially with women, if you're fine that the building that you're interviewing in is literally like five blocks away from the nearest subway, or if you really have to walk quite a bit to get where you're going, I strongly advise that you wear ballet flats in your commute and then change into your appropriate interview heels before you walk into the building. So if you're Mary Ellen, this means that you're literally posted up against the side of a building on fucking Sixth Avenue trying to change your shoes before you walk into the lobby of another building. So it sucks. It's a pain in the ass, but at least the ballet flats are slim enough that you can hide them in that bag. Also, you know, you're talking to somebody who commuted for two hours in one direction to get to the city to try and do these interviews. I, honest to God, used to throw my jacket and all of my crap in an Equinox locker closest to wherever I was interviewing and then come back for it. You don't want to look cumbersome. You you want to glide in and out of that place without any interference. A big tip that I want to advise you guys is to bring your own bottle of water. 
I have been on so many interviews and I can't tell you how many times I have not been offered water. And all you're doing in an interview is talking. Like if you guys think that I'm doing this podcast in one straight shot, thank you so much. For the most part, I am, but I have to pause every now and again to take a swig of whatever I'm drinking. So if no one's going to offer you water, make sure you bring your own. Then I also want you guys to bring several copies of your resume. These do not need to be printed on special paper. They just need to be printed because typically when you are in an interview, out of respect to you, that interviewer will not have their laptop. I, on the other hand... I sometimes bring a laptop and I say, I'm going to be taking notes on my laptop as I interview you. But a lot of people like to do this old school and make a more personal connection with the person that they're speaking with. So even if that interviewer sits across from you and pulls out a copy of your resume, you need to draw the attention to the fact that you came prepared. So that means either pulling out copies of your resume or saying, oh, you have my resume, good, because I brought some copies. You want them to know that you are prepared. I think that we can all agree that the in-person interview is more stressful, more time, more drawn out, more just like insane of a thing to do now that we have Zoom interviews being the precedent. But I can't in good conscience release a podcast that doesn't cover both. So now that you know how to do an in-person interview, let's talk about Zoom interviews. And let's remember that probably while you are going through your job interview process in a normal world, you're doing a combination of all of this. You're doing phone calls, you're doing in-person, you're doing Zooms, maybe not in that order. But with a Zoom interview, I cannot stress this enough, y'all. Please test your technology. That means video and audio. Zoom is one of those things that a lot of people have access to. It is the primary means of trying to interview someone. And of course, you could use like Microsoft Teams or Amazon has Chime, uh, which is their own like video conferencing software. Uh, You also have like, you know, oh, what happened to Skype? Anyone been checking on Skype lately? Oh, God, RIP. Anyway, but the thing is, is that all I mean by Zoom interview is a video interview. You could also do this on Google Hangouts. So the thing is, is that anything that can go wrong with tech will go wrong with tech. So if you have an important, very important meeting coming up, you want to make sure that whatever means that you're doing this video interview on, you test with a friend or with another device. So when you do a video interview, what do you need? You need to remember that instead of someone judging your body language and the way that you sit at a table, they are now going to be judging the way that you appear on camera. And lucky for you all, I did uh, film and television as my undergrad. So anyway, so with sound, let's talk about sound for a second. For the love of God, a quiet room. Like, I know you all have different situations and you're interviewing from different places, but if you're living with someone who does not support being quiet for 30 minutes so you can have an interview, find someone else to live with, honestly. Um, I know that this is very, very difficult sometimes if you can't manifest a quiet space, but there's got to be a way that you do it. And if you do have background noise, I advise you to use a headset. 
And the problem with the headset though is I want you to be conscious of where that mic placement is while you are using a headset. So if you are wearing a piece of clothing that might rub up against the microphone that's in your earbuds, you're going to have to do the TikTok thing where you like pull it out with your hand and talk directly into it. So sorry to focus on sound so, so much, everyone, but the best thing that I ever learned in undergrad was in my sound theory class. And what the quote is, is that the eye is forgiving, the ear is not. So I know that we're about to talk about background and lighting, but if you're overexposed, underexposed, or glitchy, that's going to be fine and forgiving on whoever is interviewing you. However, if you can't be heard, if you are just inaudible to that interviewer, that's where it's going to be a frustrating problem on them. Then, like, let's talk about background, right? Like, what's happening behind you? For the love of God, this is your first impression on someone. Make it a white wall. And if you don't have a white wall, take some shit off of your walls. And if you still don't have a white wall, position yourself in front of a closed door. I want the background to be so neutral that nobody knows what your favorite color is, what your political affiliation is, or who your favorite rock band is. We are going for an air of mystery with this shit, people. Just make it clean and make it professional. I want you guys to also think about your shoulder up attire, okay? So we talked about suits and blazers when we were in person. This is something that I need you guys to think about as more casual because you are on Zoom, but like no tank tops, bare shoulders, uh uh-uh, have sleeves. You could even be wearing a t-shirt and a blazer and that will look more professional. And who cares if you're in sweatpants? Like you're cutting the frame at your chest, so you're fine. Another thing to consider is kind of two things in one. Where is your eye line versus where is your computer? So you have to remember that your opportunity to maintain eye contact during a video interview is by staring directly at the camera. So that means that you need to stop looking at yourself in the zoom window, but that means that this person who's listening to you will be more impressed that you are quote unquote maintaining eye contact just because you're staring at the camera. So to get your camera on a better eye line for you to stare at it, I strongly advise that you use some books or like an Amazon box to prop up the computer so that it's more at your eyeline. This is just for the interview only. Of course, you don't want to work like this. Like then your hands are like T-Rex arms trying to type. But this is a really good tactic for that interview. And also, let's consider that eyeline. If staring at the camera is making eye contact, that's why you saying at the beginning of the interview, can I take some notes, will explain every time you look away from the person that's talking. This is a nice to have, but still worth the mention. I know this one's a little harder. If you can position yourself to have a white background while also facing a wall, you will limit yourself from distractions. So if you have a corner you can use, great. If you have a smaller room, you can use, awesome. But what you're doing here is you are preventing yourself from getting distracted by maybe positioning yourself looking out onto a window or something like that. 
then you want to consider everything that your generation is great at when making videos. Do you have a ring light? If not, do, can you use natural light? If not, can you at least minimize the shadows on your face and make sure that you look bright and happy and cheerful when that camera is facing you? Ladies, and maybe gentlemen, we don't judge, if you are doing your makeup for this Zoom interview, please be conscious of what looks good on camera versus what looks good in person. I did a presentation the other day where I was like, I'm going to do my makeup because it's been months since I washed my hair. No, I'm joking. But like it's been months since I like got ready for anything. And so I put on a glitter eyeshadow that looks bomb in person, like captivating as fuck in person. But then I was looking at myself discreetly on the Zoom and I was like, I look like I like have like a highlighter on the top of my eyebrow. So I just want you guys to understand the difference between doing your look for real life and doing your look for the camera. So let's take that into consideration here. So just because of the Zoom world of video interviews these days, I'm going to couple the next two segments of this podcast. So we're going to talk about thank you notes and leave behinds in the same frame of dialogue. Every time you meet with an individual, you need to send an email to that person by the end of the next business day, thanking them for their time. But here on Switching Majors, we're on top of our shit, and the sooner you can send that note, the better. I cannot stress this to you all enough. Send thank you notes. That is why before we let that person leave the Zoom or see us out of the office, we are confirming their email address so that we can personally thank them for spending some time on interviewing us. I get a lot of people asking me if they should send a card to this person. Now, I have to admit this was very pre-pandemic. You can send a handwritten card if you see so fit. If you really want to convey your personality with something via snail mail with a handwritten sense of it. But it's unnecessary because everything is so instantaneous with email nowadays that even if you want to send a card in the mail, you also need to send an email because that card will be so delayed. So I just want you guys to think about that. Also, no one's in the fucking office right now. So like, you know, who's going to get it? Anyway, when you send this thank you email, you're going to want it to be more specific and a little longer than anything you would write in a handwritten thank you card. You're going to want to have it have personal touch, an inside joke, a relevant line that pertained to the interview that you had with that person. So that's why your notes are so important right now. Another thing that you can do in the thank you note, like we talked about in the networking episode, is that if you did have a another question for the person that you didn't get a chance to ask, this is the time in which you can put it into writing. However, the big thing with these thank you notes that I, I hate It's like you cannot expect a response. People are not going to respond to you if they're the hiring manager. They are literally interviewing at least seven other candidates. So to respond to every thank you note is just not going to happen. Plus, like also, there is a really weird air of distance when you're trying to hire someone. So if someone is external and you're thinking about 
you know, having them on your team. As a hiring manager, you don't want to show anybody any special treatment or worse, get accused of showing anyone any special treatment. So that's why usually these thank you notes go unanswered. But I do need to caution you guys, you need to write different thank you notes to every single person that you talk to. I remember once at CBS Interactive, um, a group of more middle management employees talked to the younger employees and they did like a panel. And I wrote everyone on that panel the same note. And this little annoying man that I knew called me out on using the same note to everybody. My response to him was like, oh, well, did anyone else write you a thank you note? To which he was like, well, no, but we all knew that you copy and pasted the one that you did write. So like tit for tat, shut the fuck up. But like also, fine, I'll never do it again. Now let's cover leave behinds. Typically, I would suggest that you leave behind in the interview your leave behind, which I'm going to explain in a minute. But because we are in COVID land, You need to be attaching this leave behind to the thank you note when you send it to the person that you met with. So what is a leave behind? A leave behind is a packet of your resume, references, a pitch deck, maybe a one-page explainer of the latest marketing campaign that you did. It's maybe a double-sided resume. It's professional on the front but creative on the back. It's a short deck showcasing who you are, but regardless, it is supplemental material that you are including to be considered as part of your interview process. So typically, if we're in the real world, I usually whip it out at the end of the interview and I say, thank you so much for your time today. Here's some supplemental material that you can review at your leisure to better show you that I want this job and would make a great fit. But now that we are doing everything virtually, we need to be including this in the thank you note and we need to be including it as a compiled PDF. So that means that if you have your resume, your references, your one sheet, and like a five slide deck, you don't want to attach four PDFs. You want to attach one PDF. And I strongly advise that you guys Google PDF Consolidator on Google and just consolidate all those PDFs into one document. So another set of emails that I think it's really important for you all to send and pay attention to are your HR update emails that you send through the interview process. So what do I mean by that? Like I mentioned, you might never meet this HR person in person while you are taking in-person interviews with the people that are going to hire you. So remember, at the end of every interview, those people report back to HR and they say, yes, we want to move forward with Mary Ellen or no, we do not want to move forward with Mary Ellen. So the least that you can do is keep this HR person who's like basically managing your entire interview experience. You can keep them in tune to what's going on. You can tell them, hey, thank you so much for setting up the time. I had a great meeting with this person, a great meeting with that person. I didn't get a chance to have enough time with this person, but I just wanted to keep you in the loop. 
I think that this is a misstep that a lot of people don't do, and I really want to normalize it with this podcast. That HR person is scheduling your meetings, vetting you, trying to advocate for you and push you through because if you get hired, their job is done. So if anything, you should be telling this HR person how it's fucking going. You know, like they're people too. They want to know what's up. So you always want to be sure to thank them. And you want to make sure that anything that came up during your interview is properly represented during this HR exchange. So, you know, if the hiring manager says that the job is in New York, but the HR person said that the job was in Knoxville, Tennessee, that's something that you should bring up in your exchange with the HR person, not like after the fact. So this is just a follow-up, it's just a courtesy, and it's totally okay to be sending double emails in this instance. And what I mean is that an email in which on the thread of the email, you were the last person to say anything, and then you're replying all again. I think it's a really invaluable thing to be doing. All right, guys, home stretch of the episode. I know that it's a long one, but the last thing I want to talk about in terms of interviewing are projects. And this means that you made it so far along in the interview process that you're pretty much in the final round and they need you to do a project to solidify the fact that you know what you're talking about as well as to put you up against someone else in the final round as well. So this is more typical for second jobs, third jobs than it is for entry level positions. However, I don't want to say that projects don't happen at the entry level. I have heard of them happening there. I just haven't done one myself. And why are you being asked to do a project? Well, remember, the higher that you rise in your career, the more money you end up making. And the more money that you end up making means that you need to earn that title, that position, and that salary. So by giving you a project to execute before you're actually hired, the team and the hiring manager in particular are going to understand how you work, what you're capable of, and the amount of effort that you can execute for the given role. I have seen this project come in many different shapes and sizes. I have seen a project come to me in minimal direction, like, I don't know what you want from me, I don't know how long this should be, and I don't know what to do. I've also developed a project that was actually a questionnaire. We were in a rush to hire one of our coordinators and we weren't going to do a project at all, but I said, why don't we just do a Google questionnaire and try to see how she answers emails, handles creative requests, how she does the basic bare minimum of what the job requires. So this could come in all shapes and sizes, but typically I have seen hiring managers give a short description of what they're looking for, a maximum amount of slides and or Excel documents that they want included, and I have at least seen them give a weekend for this to get completed. However, I have also seen that throughout my job searches and interviews, people can be pretty self-centered and people can be bitter. So I mention this because 
if a hiring manager like I've experienced myself is making you complete a project within a matter of business days as opposed to giving you a weekend to work on it, they are either trying to rush along the process for their own benefit or they are being bitter because someone did it to them. These are two red flags. If your hiring manager knows that you are currently working somewhere else and they only give you business days to complete this project, that means that you are working nine to five at your normal job, commuting home, and then working from however long to midnight on the project that they gave you. So if a hiring manager cannot give you a weekend to complete this project, that is a red flag in my book. So what is this project? This project could be a presentation via PowerPoint or Google Slides. It could be a budget in the form of Excel. But no matter what the project is, you are always submitting your materials in PDF. If you guys haven't noticed this trend already, I don't know what the fuck podcast you've been listening to, but we always submit our shit in PDF. Hopefully when you get this project, the manager has thought about how many slides they want included and they say, hey, in five slides or less, please, you know, map out a marketing plan for this show or this whatever. Either your manager is going to give you very detailed instructions or they're going to give you a one-liner, ambiguous project that's going to have you spinning your wheels. But either way, you need to remember that this is just a test. It's not the end-all be-all. I have seen people do subpar projects and still get the job because the hiring manager liked them. And then I've seen myself go above and beyond doing projects that are 20 pages long and still not get the job. One thing that you might want to consider on these materials as you PDF them is that you include maybe some subtext of Mary Ellen Pasanello for the consideration of the project manager position at whatever company. Some people are staunchly against these projects because it's almost as if you are doing free labor without getting the job, but I can assure you that if a project is assigned as part of your interview process, that project is something that most likely could never come to fruition. So they are testing you on something that's fake, which is arguably harder. I want you all to keep in mind that you are being judged on the whole project. So when you deliver this project to HR, you are also being judged on the email because that HR person is just going to hit forward. So when you do deliver this project, I want you to think about your subject line, your email body, the way the PDF reads, and how you consolidate your documents. By now, I hope you guys know that I'm never going to lie to you. These projects are daunting. I still get nervous when I have to do them, and I haven't done one in a very long time. But I want you, as you approach these, to really lean into your network. You've been networking with a lot of people in the industry that you're trying to work in. 
Email them. Ask them if they have time to look at it or discuss it. Talk to your friends. If your friends are working, even better. If they're not, they still probably have some ideas or a different interpretation on what the project is supposed to look like. And then also, just because your friends might not work in the same industry that you are trying to work in doesn't mean that they're not helpful. I can't tell you. When I was applying to the MBA program at NYU, my best friend Brittany literally reread my essay four or five times, and she's never applied to grad school. So grammar and spelling is always worth it just to get another set of eyes on that thing. So like I said, friends, parents, professors, networking contacts, fuck it, email me. I don't know if I have the time or if I'll see it in time, but you can sure as hell try. And you're going to want to complete this and deliver it on time. Due dates are set for a reason. So for example, if this project is due by 5 p.m. on Sunday night, there's no way in hell that anyone's looking at it until 9 a.m. the next morning. However, the test is that you get it in by 5 p.m. And I don't mean exactly 5 p.m. on the dot. I mean... 4.45, 4.30 is more appropriate. You're also going to want to ask in that email if the person that you're sending the project to can confirm receipt. And if they don't confirm receipt by 9 a.m. the next morning, you're going to hit them up again because you want to make sure that they know that you're on your shit and you're delivering everything on time. So now you've made it to the end of the interview process and now you're really in an up-in-the-air position. I have always found that when I am the top candidate for a position, things move very, very quickly. When I am not, oh my God, do people drag their ass talking to you. It's unfortunate, but you have to do the due diligence of following up with this HR person if you have to wait days or weeks post the interview process. So the rule of thumb is that following up in one week increments is totally acceptable if you are in the running for a position. So, hey, it's Monday morning. Just wanted to check in if you'd heard anything. I hope you have a great week. Monday morning is a good recommendation. If you wait until Friday afternoon, that email is going to get lost in the shuffle and they're not going to read it, especially with the weekend coming up. Middle of the week is also fine too, but all I am saying is that no news is sometimes good news, no news is sometimes bad news, and no news sometimes is no news. So because it could be all three, you just need to do what you need to do to follow up with that person. And now the final curveball of the interview process, which I would be remiss if I didn't mention rescinding your application and ceasing the interview process. So I think a lot of young people are so desperate for their first job that they forget that they are entering into a relationship. I was just telling this to a girl that I'm mentoring the other day. If you are on Bumble and you see someone that you like, that is only going to be a match if that person likes you back. 
So you need to play it cool on your end. They need to play it cool on their end. And over a period of time, a relationship will form. And if at any point, either one of you don't want to be in that relationship, you fucking break up. And I think that the very same principle can apply to companies. It's just because typically you're desperate for a job, you forget that you have the right to not have the job that you're going for. You can go find another job. So I'm going to tell you a quick story about when I was going for my job at Food Network. So six months before my job at Food Network, I had a HR screening interview with um, the HR person that worked at Food Network for a different job, for a job that I never had. I took the phone call on like a Thursday. Then on Friday, I walked into CBS and they promoted me. Pretty cool. But now I was torn because I was also starting the interview process with this other company. So I called her on Monday and I said to her this, I need to respectfully rescind my application. I just got promoted at CBS and I don't think that it's right for me to basically be rude to everybody that works so hard for me to have this promotion. And at first the HR person was like, well, come on, we can still like talk about this next opportunity. Like we can still move forward. And I said to her, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You work in HR. You know how difficult promotions are. This was months in the work. This was me earning it. This was salary negotiations. This was budgeting. This was approvals up the chain. This was hours and hours on a lot of different people. And if I leave right now, that is so ungrateful. So I'm just trying to not be a dick, basically. I think I said that. I can't remember if I did or didn't. But either way, it it worked out well. And I also said, you know, I'm trying my hardest to be respectful of your time. And if there's no way that I can take this job, then I would rather not get interviewed and go forward with the process because I respect you all too much. There is a difference between being candid and direct and being rude. And I think that this is a great example of how I got in there, made a connecting and impactful relationship with this HR person, and then six months later, when the job I have now opened up, I was able to interject myself and say, hey, six months ago was not a good time, but I'm ready now. And now I'm at Food Network, at Discovery, loving life, all is well. So I want you guys to think about this. If there is any point in the interview process that is a red flag, just like it would be if you were on a date, I would strongly reconsider moving forward with the application process. You want the best job that you can get. And I'm not saying that sometimes we don't take what we can get. But if you have the opportunity to really think about how this job is going to play out, the people that you're working with, what it's going to do to your mental sanity, these are all things that you can do to protect yourself. Oh oh my God, I know guys, that was such a long episode, but I think that we really covered a lot and I hope that you all feel better about tackling the interview process as you move forward in your job searches. Again, my name is Mary Ellen Pesanello. Hit me up on maryellenpesanello.com for more information, for contact information. You can DM me at Mary Ellen Pess, M-A-R-Y-E-L-L-E-N-P-E-S. 
It's been great talking to you guys. Thanks for listening. This has been episode eight of Switching Majors. 